Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. With me in the studio is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. It's good to have you with me. So on our last program, I uh, I jumped heavy into to Chapter 8 on India. If you haven't gotten this far, to me, this is one of the delightful chapters in the whole book. And uh, it really does give us a picture of, well, what it would be like to be a subaltern in India at, in 1896. I mean, it's it's like watching a movie if you can just imagine it in your mind. It, it really is is a very, very, very interesting. I don't have any comments today, and uh, actually I'd like to get through this chapter, so it's probably good I don't have comments today. So, But don't take that to heart, everybody. I still need comments. So, um, again, when, when uh, we ended the program last time, we were talking about the fact that, that here, uh, Winston Churchill is 21 years of age. He's only in, in India for 48 hours, and he gets invited to the government, the, the, the government house, by the governor, Lord Sandhurst, to come for dinner. And uh, the, 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 the uh, governor is asking his opinion on what he thinks of India. I mean, he's 21. You know, it's, it's just amazing. And uh, uh, he's, he, he, I, I read that chapter, or not the chapter, the paragraph, where he says, well, after 48 hours of intensive study, I formed a highly favorable opinion of India. <laughs> so, so, and that's even after he had the uh, dislocated shoulder. So, so I think he was a tough guy. So, so uh, he, he talks about this dinner, and it was just really, really fabulous. And of course, he they they had to go to bed that night, and it, it doesn't sound like uh, Winston Churchill ever had any trouble going to sleep. I mean, he loved his his naps. He uh, even you know at at uh, Chartwell, we've been to Chartwell too to see his house. He was a nap taker. <laughs> he also was a bricklayer, by the way. He laid down bricks for his wall there, and it just—it was really just amazing to see. So I, I've seen—I've seen, I've seen uh, where he was born. I've seen his own house, and so uh, I have a great fondness and love for Winston Churchill. All right, I just wanted to go on um, here. Is is after that big dinner they had to go off to Bangalore, and this is where they were going to be uh, be going to be staying there. So. So uh, it was. It's really amazing that uh, that he got to go to the government government house, and he wasn't even going to be staying there very long. So I'm going to go to page 104. Let's uh, let's just get in the middle of the page there. He said, but almost immediately it seemed the trumpets sounded reveille. So so they went to sleep. They were very positive about what what England and the British Empire was doing in India. They went to sleep. All of a sudden the trumpets sounded reveille. We had to get up. And they had to catch the 510 train for our 36-hour journey to Bangalore. So, so now remember uh, from even the last pro- couple programs that, that Winston Churchill had to really work on punctuality. But now that he was in India, 
and there are a lot of servants, they were getting him up early. So you got up at 510. He says, the great, and, and he's talking about Bangalore now. And he's, he, uh, one thing about Winston Churchill, he really knew his geography. And good soldiers have to know their geography if they're going to win wars. He says, the great triangular plateau of southern India comprises the domains of the Nizam and the Maharaja of Mysore. The tranquility of these regions, together about the size of France, is assured in the ultimate resort by two British garrisons of two or three thousand troops apiece at Bangalore and at Secunderabad. In each case, there is added about a double the number of Indian troops, so that sufficient forces of all arms are permanently available for every purpose of training and maneuver. And so, <clears throat> so remember, he finished his his uh, training with uh, you know with riding horses, the hussars. But now, when they were coming to to uh, India, they were being trained more on maneuver, like how to move troops and how to how to win battles, and so, so it's it's like he's getting more training. It's not like you know he's like I'm the big guy when I get in, in town, and so so it it really is interesting. And remember now again he's he's a uh, he's he's uh, 21, but soon he's going to turn 22 here in Bangalore. He said um, the British the the British lines or cantonments are in accordance with the invariable practice placed five or six miles from the populous cities which they guard. And in the intervening space lies the line of the Indian regiments. The British troops are housed in large, cool, colonnaded barracks. Here, forethought and order have been denied neither time nor space in the laying out of their plans. And so so, so here, you know, the, 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 the empire went in there with plans. Says splendid roads, endless double avenues of shady trees, abundant supplies of pure water, imposing offices, hospitals, and institutions, ample parade grounds, and riding schools characterize these centers of the collective life of considerable white communities. And so, so it, it again, um, they they did have a separation between the British and the, the Indian populations, but it wasn't racist. You know, it was, they were still building hospitals, they were building riding schools, they were getting uh, ready to train more soldiers to actually help, uh, you know, preserve India. The climate of Bangalore at more than 3,000 feet above sea level is excellent. Although the sun strikes with torrid power, the nights, except in the hottest months, are cool and fresh. The roses of Europe in innumerable large pots attain the highest perfection of fragrance and color. Flowering, flowers, flowering shrubs, creepers blossom in glorious profusion. Snipe and snakes abound in the marshes. Brilliant butterflies dance in the sunshine and notch girls by the light of the moon. Now, that's interesting. And I had to look up what a notch girl was. And essentially, they are dancing girls. They're Indian dancing girls, and they dance at night. And they, they're dance for entertainment. And so, but don't get perverted in your mind and thinking it's all for sex. It's not. It's it's absolute culture in in uh, India. Uh, he goes on to say, um, no quarters are provided for the officers. They draw instead a lodging allowance, which together with their pay and other incidental fills each month with silver rupees, a string net bag as big as a prize turnip. <laughs> 
All around the Calvary Mass lies a suburb of roomy, one-story bungalows standing in their own walled grounds and gardens. The subaltern receives his bag of silver and at the end of each month of duty, canters home with it to his bungalow, throws it to his beaming butler, and then in theory has no further material cares. <laughs> so so he's got his whole life you know, organized. It's really organized way of living. Uh, he said, it was however better in a cavalry regiment in those days to supplement the generous rewards of the queen empress by an allowance from home three or four times as great. So here, Victoria really made sure she took care of her soldiers. And she knew that the empire needed you know, a good military so they could continue their good work. It wasn't because they wanted to just sub- subject everybody. They wanted to help people. And, of course, I've, I've just read recently that she really wanted very hard to, to help Africa as well, as much as they helped India, and the place exploded. You know, and uh, we're going to talk about that uh, with the Boer War and things like that. He says, altogether, we receive for our services about 14 shillings a day with about three pounds a month on which we, we to keep two horses. This, together with a 5,000 pound a year paid quarterly, was my sole means of support. All the rest had to be borrowed at usurious rates of uh, usurious rates of interest from all the two accommodating native bankers. Every officer was warned against these gentlemen. Okay, so so, but now you got to understand it. Winston Churchill's going to have a different view. <laughs> so he says they were warned. He says, but I always found them most agreeable. They were very fat, very urbane, quite honest, and mercy, mercilessly rapacious. All you had to do was to sign a little bits of paper and produce a polo pony as if by magic. Uh, he said the smiling financier rose to his feet, covered his face with his hands, replaced his slippers, and trotted off contentedly till the till that day three months. They only they only charged two percent a month and made quite a good living out of it, considering they hardly ever had a bad debt. And so so essentially he learned to work with these people. And uh, and they I'm sure if they trusted him and they they uh, they didn't uh, well uh, abuse him at all. He says we three, Reginald Barnes, Hugo Baring, and I, pulling all of our resources, took a palatial bungalow, all pink and white, with heavy tiled roof and deep verandas sustained by white plaster columns, wreathed in purple bougainvillea. It stood in a compound of grounds of perhaps two acres. We took over from the late occupant about a hundred and fifty splendid standard roses. So can I mean these are soldiers in India. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you can, I mean, Winston grew up wealthy, you know, and so he's still, he's still living a wealthy life, even as a subaltern. He said, we built a large tiled barn with mud walls containing stabili- stabling for 30 horses and ponies. Three men, 30 horses and ponies? That's a lot of, that's a lot to feed. Our three butlers formed a triumvirate in which no internal dissensions ever appeared. We paid an equal contribution into the pot and thus freed from mundane cares, devoted ourselves to the serious purpose of life. So guess what the serious purpose of life was? This was expressed in one word, polo. <laughs> so so think about this. I mean, this is a really good chapter. Uh, it's kind of divided up. This is one. The serious purpose of life is polo. The next page is, uh, you know, the, the military duties. 
And so why do you get to the military duties? It's really, it's really uh, quite hilarious, by the way. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, he said, it, it, referring to Polo, it says, it was upon this apart from duty that all of our interest was concentrated. But before you could play Polo, you must have ponies. We had formed on the voyage a regimental Polo club, which in turn for moderate but regular subscriptions from all the officers, meaning polo players and non-polo players alike, offered substantial credit facilities for the procuring of these indispensable allies. A regiment coming from home was never expect to count in the Indian polo world for a couple of years. It took the t that time to get proper stud of ponies together. However, the president of our polo club and the senior officers, after prolonged and anxious discussions, determined upon a bold and novel stroke. The Baikala stables at Bombay form the main emporium through which Arab horses and ponies are imported to India. So they didn't have to worry about bringing their ponies from, from England. They could just get them from the Arabs. I mean, I think we know King Solomon did the same thing. He got his ponies from, from I think, uh, uh, maybe not the, exactly the Arabs, but I know from, from uh, international people. He says, the Pune Light Horse, a native regiment strongly offered by British, uh, officered by British, had in virtue of its permanent station an obvious advantage in the purchase of Arabian ponies. On our way through the Pune, we had tried their ponies and had entered into deeply important negotiations with them. Finally, it was decided that the Regimental Pony Club should purchase the entire polo stud of 25 ponies by the Pune Light Horse, so that these ponies should form the nucleus around which we would gather the means of future victory in the inter-regimental tournament. <laughs> so, so these guys invested a lot of money in these Arab ponies. And uh, uh, so, so when they're in, in uh, uh, India, it's not just for soldiering. It's, you've got an inter-regimental uh, inter tournament of polo. And so, so uh, I, I think I've even seen some of the old movies about Winston Churchill and the polo tournaments. Uh, but I think polo is very, very in, uh, big in India as well, you know. And uh, uh, he says, I can hardly describe the sustained intensity of purpose with which we threw ourselves into this audacious and colossal undertaking. Never in the history of Indian polo had a cavalry regiment from southern India won the International Regimental Cup. We knew it would take two or three years of sacrifice contrivance and effort to get ready for such a, an event. So uh, it's amazing. But if all other diversions were put aside, we did not believe that success was beyond our compass. To this task, then we settled down with complete absorption. All right, so that's, that's life in India's polo. <laughs> now, let's hear what he says about military duties. This is really interesting. He goes on to say, <clears throat> I'll do that for him. <clears throat> I must not forget to say that there were, of course, also a great many military duties. <laughs> Just before dawn, every morning, one was awakened by a dusky figure with a clammy hand, adroitly lifting one's chin and applying a gleaming razor to a lathered and defenseless throat. So these are their servants, or their ministers, I should say. And... They go to, the, it's time to get up. 
they're shaving their neck before they even get out of bed. <laughs> so he says, by six o'clock, the regiment was on parade and we rode to a wide plain and there drilled and maneuvered for an hour and a half. We then returned to baths at the bungalow and breakfast in the mess. So they were up six o'clock in the morning. They're on there. They're already working. Then at nine, stables and northerly rooms till about half past ten, then home to the bungalow before the sun attained its fiercest ray. All the distances in the spread out cantonment were so great that walking was impossible. So, so just remember, this is a big facility. It's huge. He said, we cantered on hacks from one place to another, but the noonday sun asserted his tyrannical authority, and long before 11 o'clock, all white men were in shelter. We nipped across to luncheon at half past one in the blistering heat and then returned to sleep till five o'clock. That sounds like pretty cool military duties to me, you know. So, so uh, uh, anyway, I, I just think it's interesting. Now, remember even earlier in the book when they were in Cuba um, that Winston Churchill praised the, the Romans for knowing how to take good naps. And uh, he really believed that they, you don't need to stay up till midnight, just take a big nap. He said, it is, it is the hour for which we have been living all day long, meaning to go to sleep. I was accustomed in those days to play every chukka I could get into. Now, I had to look up chukka, and uh, yeah, I didn't want that. Was it food? What was it talking about? But a chukka is a period in a polo match, and you have to really want to get into this match. I don't know any about polo, so I just did this on the internet yesterday. It says, um, but it's a seven and a half minute, and of course, if you if you really love polo and you want to, you want your team to win, you're going to try and get in as many chuckas as you can. And and I assumed that that uh, Winston Churchill was a pretty good polo player player because he worked hard to get in at least twelve chuckas per game. That's a lot of that's a lot of chucka. <laughs> anyway. He says, the whole system was elaborately organized for the garrison during the morning, and a smart little peon collected the names of all the officers together with the number of chuckas they wished to play. These were averaged out so as to secure the greatest good of the greatest number. I very rarely played less than eight and more often ten or twelve. And so so uh, Winston loved to be in a chucka, and he liked to be, if he could be, he wanted to be in 12 of them. Now he goes on, he's closing this chapter now, 8. So we're actually going to finish chapter 8 today. It says, As the shadows lengthened over the polo ground, we ambled back, perspiring and exhausted to hot baths, rest, and 8.30 p.m. dinner, to the strains of the regimental brand and the clinking of ice in well-filled glasses. Thereafter, those who were not so unlikely as to be caught by the senior officers to play a tiresome game then in vogue called Wisped, W-H-I-S-T. I looked it up, and there actually is still a card game called Wist. And the card game was started during the, during the Civil War in America. And so uh, uh, I'd like to get a few people together to see if we can learn to play Wist. It's really a cagey game, I guess, where you have to cheat to win. So uh, it's, it's like a lot of card games, I guess. Anyway, he said officers, they, they didn't like to play the game because it was tiresome. You had to really concentrate. So he said a lot of them were just sat smoking in the moonlight till half past 10 or 11 at the latest, singled the 
and so to bed. Such was the long, long Indian day, as I knew it for three years, and not such a bad day either. So, so he's saying is, look, it was it was not uh, just all military stuff, but there was a lot of work, I'm sure, learning military maneuvers, and then of course you had to play polo, and then maybe he got caught up in a few a few games of whist. So, so we'll see. But anyway. Um, I, I think it really gives gives us a beautiful view of the empire and what really, really what it was like. And it, to me, it sounds, uh, you know, I, I love I love England anyway. Um, I love the idea of the empire, and of course, you know, we know that um, uh, that God is going to establish the God family empire on this earth, and everybody is going to benefit. The earth is going to be peaceful. The earth is going to there's not going to be any more war. People are going to be educated properly. People are going to be taught how to play games properly. People are going to be taught, you know, great culture. And uh, I, I, I really look forward to that. So, so we still have a few minutes. Let's let's just slip into chapter nine now, and we're not going to get very far into this chapter nine. But in some ways, uh, <clears throat> it it really is a is a great chapter, and it tells us a lot about the young Winston Churchill. Remember now, he's at Bangalore, and uh, at the very top of this page he says, it was not until the winter of 1896 when I had almost completed my 22nd year that the desire for learning came upon me. I began to feel myself wanting in the vaguest, even the vaguest knowledge about many large spheres of thought. I had picked up a wide vocabulary and had a liking for words and for the feel of words fitting and falling into their places like pennies in the slot. So he was a gambler, by the way. And so he liked that sound of pennies in the slot. He said, I caught myself using good many words, using a good many words, the meaning of which I could not define precisely. I admired these words, but was afraid to use them for fear of being absurd. All right, so this is he's 22 now. And he's he's he never really did want to go, you know, uh, beyond a certain. You know, he went to Sandhurst. That was a military school, but remember, he made a lot of fun of college-trained people, and so so then he, now he's beginning to realize, I'm not as educated as I need to be. He said. Um, he said, I admired these words, but was afraid to use them for fear of being absurd. One day before I left England, a friend of mine had said, Christ's gospel was the last word in ethics. And he said, this sounded good, but what were ethics? They had never been mentioned to me at Harrow or Sandhurst. Judging from the context, I thought they must mean the public school spirit, playing the game, esprit de corps, honorable behavior, patriotism, and the like. Then someone told me that ethics were concerned not merely with the things you ought to do, but with why you ought to do them, and that there were whole books written on the subject. So, so it's interesting. He didn't understand ethics. And, of course, when we had our court case, uh, the lawyers would uh, educate me on ethics anytime they could, <laughs> they could get a hold of me. And so, uh, uh, of course, I did a few funny things with them that, that uh, at first they didn't like because it affected their ethics. And then when they realized why I did it, they said, oh, that was great. We're, we're going to follow what you said. 
So that's a whole long story that doesn't belong here. It says, I would have paid some scholar two pounds at least to give me a lecture of an hour or an hour and a half about ethics. So think about this. This is a 22-year-old saying, hey, I need to understand ethics. I'll pay you to teach me. And uh, I feel like that's what I'm, I have to do. Uh, I think a lot of people around here know I'm taking Irish dance. And I, have to, I want my grandson to help me uh, learn the treble steps. They're really cool because you get to make noise. Anyway, I'm going to have to pay him, I think, to help me with that. <laughs> he said, what's the scope of the subject? What were its main branches? What were the principal questions dealt with? And the chief controversies open. Who were the high authorities? And which were the standard books? But here in Bangalore, there was no one to tell me about ethics for love or money. Of tactics, I had a grip. On politics, I had a view. But a concise, comp uh, compendious outline of ethics was a novelty not to be locally obtained. This was only a, tip, a typical of a dozen similar mental needs that now began to press insistently upon me. I know, of course, that the youths at the university were stuffed with all this patter at 19 and 20 and could pose you in trapping questions or give baffling answers. We never set much store by them or their affected superiority, remembering that they were only at their books while we were commanding men and guarding the empire. Nevertheless, I had something, I had sometimes resented the apt and copious information which some of them seemed to possess, and I now wished I could find a competent teacher whom I could listen to and cross-examine for an hour or so every day. So, so think about this. This is, this is something that all, all of our young people need to, to understand. And I always tell my students, look, when I come into a classroom, my responsibility is to give you the best lecture I can. But, uh, and, and I can schedule you the reading you should do, but you're responsible for your own education. If you don't read the book, it's not my fault. You know, if you don't pay attention to the lectures and take notes, it's not my fault. And if you've passed tests, it's because you did a good job. If you failed a test, you just didn't do your job. And so, so here, uh, Winston Churchill's come into this understanding himself. And he says, I need to educate myself. There's no one else I can get. Uh, he said, then someone had used the phrase the Socratic method. What was that? It was apparently a way of giving your friend his head in an argument and progging him into a pit by cunning questions. Who was Socrates anyhow? A very argumentative Greek who had a nagging wife and was finally compelled to commit suicide because he was a nuisance. <laughs> No, that's funny. All right. Believe it or not, <laughs> we're at the end of another program. And so that's all the time I have for today's program. Now, on our next program, we are going to continue education at Bangalore. And hopefully we'll get into ch uh, Chapter 10 as well. So you can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Now, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. And you can also follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading.
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.